kingdom is spreading, oh, tell ye the story, God's banner exalted shall be. The earth shall be full of his knowledge and glory as waters that cover the sea. Acts chapter 10, beginning in verse 44 and reading through chapter 11, verse 18. Acts 10, beginning in verse 44. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all who heard the word. And those of the circumcision who believed were astonished, as many as came with Peter, because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. For they heard them speak with tongues and magnify God. Then Peter answered, Can anyone forbid water, that these should not be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord. Then they asked him to stay a few days. Now the apostles and brethren who were in Judea heard that the Gentiles had also received the word of God. And when Peter came up to Jerusalem, those of the circumcision contended with him, saying, You went into uncircumcised men and ate with them. But Peter explained it to them in order from the beginning, saying, I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision an object descending like a great sheet let down from heaven by four corners. And it came to me. When I observed it intently and considered, I saw four-footed animals of the earth, wild beasts, creeping things, and birds of the air. And I heard a voice saying to me, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, Not so, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has at any time entered my mouth. But the voice answered me again from heaven, What God has cleansed you must not call common. Now this was done three times, and all were drawn up again into heaven. At that very moment, three men stood before the house where I was, having been sent to me from Caesarea. Then the Spirit told me to go with them, doubting nothing. Moreover, these six brethren accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. And he told us how he had seen an angel standing in his house, who said to him, "'Send men to Joppa and call for Simon, whose surname is Peter,' who will tell you words by which you and all your household will be saved. And as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them as upon us at the beginning. Then I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John indeed baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If therefore God gave them the same gift that he gave us when we believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, Who was I that I could withstand God? When they heard these things, they became silent, and they glorified God, saying, Then God has also granted to the Gentiles repentance to life. In our last study, we looked at the first two of these verses to discover what exactly happened to the household and friends of Cornelius who had gathered to hear Peter preach. We discovered that they were baptized in the Holy Spirit, That is, the Spirit fell on them. He imposed himself on their minds and wills in an overwhelming way, and such an overwhelming way, in fact, that they began to praise God in a language they themselves did not understand, most likely Hebrew. We ought to mention here that we're finding some real difficulty in giving rigid, consistent definitions to some of the phrases and expressions that Luke and other Bible writers 
used to describe the work of the Holy Spirit. The expressions gift of the Holy Spirit, receive the Holy Spirit, baptism in the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit fell on them seem to mean subtly but significantly different things in different contexts. Sometimes these expressions have referred to Christ giving the apostles the Spirit as their special helper or assistant, by whom they were empowered to exercise authority. When this gift was given on the day of Pentecost, it represented the formal inauguration of the kingdom of heaven on earth, because by it the apostles became the earthly spokesmen of King Jesus in heaven, through whom he was able to communicate his rule and authority to his subjects here. Other times, the same expressions have referred to the phenomenal sign from God that he had accomplished his work and that the kingdom had come. This is what seems to generally be meant by the baptism in the Holy Spirit, which was always manifest through the miracle of tongue-speaking. Still other times, the same expressions, at least some of them, refer to the impartation of special gifts of the Spirit to the members of the body of Christ through the laying on of the apostles' hands. And finally, the same expressions can be used in a figure of speech called metonymy to represent the fullness of the blessings of the kingdom of God and our general participation in it, even with no supernatural or phenomenal signs attached in any respect. In a future study, we will re-examine the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts and attempt to bring all these complex issues together systematically as best we can. Here in Acts 10, when Luke says that the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who heard the word, as Peter preached, or that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles, or when Peter says, I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John indeed baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Therefore, God gave them the same gift as he gave us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. The meaning is the second of the possibilities we previously mentioned. Cornelius, his household, and his friends received the baptism with the Spirit as a sign that God would accept them into the kingdom of heaven even without circumcision or entrance into the law-keeping community of Jews. In verse 45, Luke says, Those of the circumcision who believed were astonished. They were astonished because this was completely contrary to how they thought the gospel worked. When Luke speaks of those of the circumcision, he does not simply mean Jews, as we shall see in a moment, but he refers to a mindset among some of the Jewish Christians, particularly the Judean or Hebrew believers, which would have included the twelve apostles and James the brother of Jesus, that the promised blessing to Abraham was only for Israel. The nations could all come and participate in it if they would Judaize, that is, if they would become Jews, to use the language of Esther chapter 8 and verse 17, by circumcision and submission to the law of Moses. The visions, the angel, the messages of the Holy Spirit, and the manifest hunger and thirst for righteousness of these Gentiles had all worked together in the purposes of God to change Peter's mind on this matter. But in one final grand display, God sealed the issue by anointing these people with the power of the Holy Spirit to manifest publicly and undeniably that he had accepted them and approved them for participation in his kingdom. Those who might have remained skeptical were astonished and saw clearly what God had done. 
continuing in verse 46. Then Peter answered, Can anyone forbid water, that these should not be baptized, who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord. Well, this endorses our interpretation of the experience of Cornelius and his company. The baptism in the Holy Spirit did not make them Christians. It did not secure their justification or take away their sins, nor did it make them part of the community of believers. It proved to the Jewish Christians who were before them that Gentiles can become Christians, being justified by faith in Christ and having their sins washed away, that this was possible through the work of Jesus. Luke, Peter, and the Lord Jesus himself have already established very clearly that water baptism is the event in which God saves the one who believes in Jesus, Mark 16, 16. It is the event in which God washes away our sins, Acts 22, 16. It is the event in which our sins are put into remission, and we become full participants in the kingdom of heaven, Acts 2.38. It is the event in which we are brought into the congregation of Christ, Acts 2.41. When Luke says that Peter commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord, remember that in the name of the Lord is not a reference to a spoken formula, but it refers to being baptized in the way Jesus commanded, for the reasons he commanded, because he commanded it that is, as an expression of submission to him and of trust in him. In the past, we've heard a sinner ask a preacher, what hinders me from being baptized? We've heard a preacher ask a sinner, what are you waiting for? Arise and be baptized. And now we hear the preacher ask the audience, can anyone forbid water that these should not be baptized? And this has been the point and purpose of the whole matter. The miraculous element of these events, the angel, the visions, the leading of the Spirit, the tongue-speaking, were not for Cornelius' benefit. In the end, he and those who were with him were saved and brought into the kingdom of God by the same means and the same method as everyone else we've encountered thus far. They heard the word of the Lord concerning Jesus preached, they believed it, and they were baptized for the forgiveness of their sins to begin a life of loyal submission to Christ the King. I want to point out before we move on that Peter, both in his sermon, 1043, and in his explanation of the events later, 1117, makes faith or believing in Jesus the basis of justification for both the Jew and the Gentile. This is the essence and heart of the gospel. This is the fundamental truth that was utterly inconsistent with the idea that only those who became Jews could be right with God. It will be a vital point of discussion and at time contention in the coming years of Christian history presented in the book of Acts. Martin Luther did not overstate the case when he called justification by faith the article on which the church stands or falls. We have learned in this passage, and we will find consistently throughout Scripture, that justification by faith does not exclude baptism for the remission of sins. Baptism is a work of faith, an expression of trust in Christ. It is an appeal to Him alone for a clean conscience, according to the Apostle Peter himself in 1 Peter 3.21. It is the event in which God 
fully and formally affects our pardon and moves us from a state of condemnation to a state of justification and brings us into a new life created in Christ Jesus for good works. Verse 48 concludes, Then they asked him to stay a few days. These days would surely be filled with teaching, with asking and answering questions. Surely they would introduce the new believers to Brother Philip and the other disciples who lived and worshipped in their city and into whose congregation they would be received as members. Perhaps here, Cornelius would be confronted with heavy truths about living under the rule of Christ that would change forever his life. We've not given any attention, really, to the fact that he was a soldier, or that other soldiers under his command had come to faith in the true God through him. And we suppose that they were in this same crowd, and that they were baptized along with Cornelius. However, that is worthy of some consideration. In the teaching of Jesus Christ, especially Matthew chapter 5, verses 43-48, Jesus laid down principles that would define life in his kingdom. And these have been understood by believers since the first century to mean that Christians cannot intentionally take human life, including in service to their country in war or by police action or through personal efforts of self-defense. You have heard it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and abuse you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. There is more historical support that up until the time of Constantine, the early Christians understood the teaching of Jesus in these and other passages to demand pacifism than that they sang without instrumental music or ate the Lord's Supper on the first day of every week. Now, I believe those latter practices can be established convincingly enough, and I contend for them, but I simply wish to point out the inconsistency of those who appeal for them on the basis of following the example of primitive Christians, but ignore the primitive Christian stance on nonviolence and anti-militarism. Cornelius is one of the most common arguments against Christian pacifism. Yet the argument proves nothing. McGarvey stated the real facts of the matter very well. We would be glad to know more of the history of Cornelius so as to determine how far, even in times of peace, the profession of arms is compatible with the faithful service of the Prince of Peace. He is the only soldier of whose conversion we have an account in the New Testament, and of his subsequent career we know nothing. Whether amid the scenes of blood and desolation, not many years after, most wickedly visited upon Judea by the army in which he was an officer, he resigned his office or made shipwreck of the faith, we cannot know until the great day. Let it be noted, however, that his is an instance of a soldier becoming a Christian, not of a Christian becoming a soldier." It furnishes a precedent for the former, but not for the latter. Whether Peter instructed him to resign his position in the army or not is to be determined not by the silence of the historian in reference to it, but by first determining whether military service is compatible 
with the moral teachings of the New Testament. If Jesus and the apostles had been, for more than 30 years previous to the publication of Acts, teaching that Christians should not take up the sword, it was not at all necessary for Luke to say that Peter so instructed Cornelius. That's from McGarvey's original commentary on Acts. And I want to say I agree with it completely. The Bible does not have to tell us that Rahab the harlot or Simon the sorcerer ceased to be a harlot and a sorcerer when they became followers of the God of heaven. Because the Bible establishes clearly in many other places that sorcery and harlotry are not conducive with loyalty to the one true God. Similarly, Luke was under no obligation to tell us that Cornelius beat his sword into a plowshare or his spear into a pruning hook and learned to study war no more when he became a follower of Messiah. For the Bible plainly teaches in many other places that that is part of what it means to follow the Messiah. In addition to teaching and instruction, however, perhaps the most remarkable feature of those few days was a brand new kind of fellowship for Peter and his companions, breaking bread with gladness and simplicity of heart with people from the other side of the wall of partition, which they now begin to see has been broken down itself by Jesus Christ. Chapter 11, verses 1 through 3. Now the apostles and brethren who were in Judea heard that the Gentiles had also received the word of God. Notice again, this is Luke's emphasis. The whole point of this event was to awaken the Judean Christians, including and especially the apostles, to the fact that Gentiles were welcomed into the kingdom. Without this event, the apostles would have gone on withholding their witness to the resurrection, their authoritative instruction in the way of the Lord, their importation of the gifts of the Spirit from any Gentiles who might come to follow Christ. And that would have not only have been devastating for those believers, but it would have been ruinous to the unity of the church. And ultimately, it surely would have ended in a schism between those who accepted the universality of the gospel and those who did not. And when Peter came up to Jerusalem, those of the circumcision contended with him, saying, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. Here we see rather clearly that those of the circumcision mean something more to Luke than merely Jews. All the believers in Jerusalem were Jews, but certain ones among them held to and perpetuated the Judaizing principle. In time, this attitude will be driven out of the apostles and most of the other believers, but among some it will remain even to the point of forming a sect or party that had to be opposed by the apostles as something contrary to the gospel and the will of God. Note that their greatest concern was Peter going into the home of uncircumcised men and eating with them. Of course, his preaching to them could not be condemned because even the prophets preached to the Gentiles. Perhaps his baptism of them might have raised some serious questions, but the fact that he had entered into table fellowship with them demonstrated fully and unavoidably that he had broken from the Jewish standards of purity. Verse 4. But Peter explained it to them in order from the beginning, saying, I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, an object descending like a great sheet let down from heaven by four corners, and it came to me. 
When I observed it intently and considered, I saw four-footed animals of the earth, wild beasts, creeping things, and birds of the air. And I heard a voice saying to me, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, Not so, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has at any time entered my mouth. But the voice answered me again from heaven, What God has cleansed you must not call common. Now this was done three times, and all were drawn up again into heaven. At that very moment, three men stood before the house where I was, having been sent to me from Caesarea. Then the Spirit told me to go with them, doubting nothing. Moreover, these six brethren accompanied me, and we entered the man's house, and he told us how he had seen an angel standing in his house, who said to him, Send men to Joppa, and call for Simon, whose surname is Peter, who will tell you words by which you and all your household will be saved. And as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them as upon us at the beginning. With this recitation, Peter explains that, as they would have known, there had been a time when he had the same feelings and scruples as them. And he held those so passionately that it took some major works of divine intervention to change his mind. But major works of divine intervention had taken place, and they could not be ignored. Verse 16, Then I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John indeed baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If therefore God gave them the same gift as he gave us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could withstand God? Here we see a clear manifestation of the growing understanding of a fully inspired man. Peter had already preached that the promise of God, the blessings of the kingdom of Messiah, was not only for Jews, but for all who were afar off, Acts 2.39. This was a common Jewish way of referring to Gentiles, Ephesians 2.13. Yet in that moment, under the inspiration of the Spirit, he was, to use the words of Dr. James E. Smith, speaking better than he knew. As years rolled on, when Peter spoke by the Spirit, he always spoke the truth. And some, like the Hellenists, Stephen and Philip, accepted that truth, and they went further with it than Peter himself or his brother apostles. But the time had now come for him to remember the word of the Lord and to understand it and to put it into practice. So he reasoned through the matter well, and concluded that to cling any longer to his old conviction was to stand in God's way, and he had no interest in that. Verse 18, When they, that is, those of the circumcision who had attacked Peter, heard these things, that is, Peter's testimony and his evaluation of the things he'd seen and heard, they became silent, that is, they ceased opposing or criticizing him, and they glorified God, saying, Then, God has also granted to the Gentiles repentance to life. What a powerful lesson from our ancient brothers about growing in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. These were men of conviction and passion. They were willing to contend for what they believed was right and true, but they were also willing to learn and grow and lay aside beliefs and convictions that were shown to be an error. And when they learned better, they did not lose faith, nor did they become bitter against the one who had proven them wrong. They glorified God. I believe if we can come to understand the marvelous truth of justification by faith in Jesus Christ, 
It will not take away our passion for truth or obedience. It will not mean that truth and obedience no longer matters. It will show that it matters for a different but much greater reason than we ever imagined. May we all learn to glorify God, to celebrate and to rejoice for the thrill of learning more accurately His ways and His works and His nature. The final words of these men bear a little analysis. Then, literally, well then, as a statement of surrender, God has also granted to the Gentiles repentance to life. As nothing in these words to support the Calvinistic doctrine of total depravity, the meaning is not that God had to perform some miracle on the heart of the Gentiles to allow them to repent and seek him. Certainly, the record of Cornelius has proven that unregenerate men can hunger and thirst for righteousness and seek after God, and many do. When the brethren say, God has also granted to the Gentiles repentance to life, they simply mean that what we have already established as the message of the whole incident is true. That the work of Christ God has made the door of salvation and close fellowship open to all the people of the world. It was time for the witness of the apostles to move in pursuit of the grace of God to the ends of the earth. As we continue, we shall find that there will be more obstacles to overcome and more growth to experience, but this was a major work of God for the increase of His kingdom. To Him be the glory. Thanks again for listening. Please subscribe to keep up with our weekly releases as we continue through the scriptures together. Verse by Verse is brought to you by the 11th Street Church of Christ in Tulsa, Oklahoma. You can contact us at tulsachurchofchrist at gmail.com or visit tulsachurchofchrist.com. From all the dark places of earth's heathen races, oh, see how the thick shadows fly. The voice of salvation awakes every nation. Come over and help us, they cry. The kingdom is spreading, oh, tell ye the story. God's banner exalted shall be. The earth shall be full of his knowledge and glory as waters that cover the sea. With praising and singing and jubilant ringing, their arms of rebellion cast down. At last every nation, the Lord of salvation, with glory their effort shall crown. The kingdom is spreading, oh, tell ye the story, God's banner exalted shall be. The earth shall be full of his knowledge and glory as waters that cover the sea.